If you would take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4, we'll be in Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 this morning. Galatians 4, 1 through 11. I've mentioned a few times that we're talking about adoption this morning, um, our adoption as children of God. Adoption in the real world, I guess I would say, as in a circumstance where a child is adopted is a um, painstaking process. It's a joy-filled process, but it's one that often takes time and energy and money. Um, if you were to adopt a child, it, especially if you were going to seek a foreign adoption, if you started today, it could take as long as two years to see that accomplished. It would take funds, it would take trips to another country to invest time in, in, in going there and seeing the child and um, and talking to the authorities there and making sure that everything is, is right. It would take a lot of energy and effort on the part of a parent to uh, to seek out an adoption of a child. And yet, for those that have adopted children, it's it's always worth the effort, worth the energy when the child is adopted, when the child is, is brought home. Um, I know many of you know Todd and Natalie Morikawa, or if you don't know them, you've heard of them, and they are seeking to uh, adopt a child. And it's been a process. It's It's been a long period of time where they are waiting. They've been filling out paperwork, and they've been uh, having all the home studies and everything that goes along with this. And they are still waiting. And yet, Lord willing, there will come a day when they bring a child home. And that child will be their child, will be a Morikawa. Whatever the child's name was before, they will be a Morikawa. And I'll tell you what, I would love to be that child. How would you like to be brought from uh, wherever you would be? It doesn't matter where. And to go and live in Hawaii. That's the that's the that's the the part of the United States to be adopted into, isn't it? <laughs> to be taken to what Todd calls paradise, as I've talked to him. Um, but it's a beautiful thing. It's it's something that involves all this this effort, and yet there is this joy and this transformation that happens when a child is adopted. They suddenly become a part of a brand new family. It's such a beautiful illustration, and and Paul talks about it here in Galatians chapter four, and he speaks to us about what God has done for us the effort we might say the lengths that god has gone to to adopt us to make us his children and then the beauty of what happens when he does that that we are truly children of god we are heirs and amazingly the bible says we are joint heirs with jesus christ jesus becomes our brother we are brought into the family and we are equal with christ in our in receiving uh, the heir being an heir of all that god would give us Let's read this, these verses together in Galatians chapter 4 as we begin to think about what God has done for us in adopting us as his children. Galatians 4 beginning in verse 1. It says, Now I say as long as the heir is a child, he is no different. He is not, no, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I originally intended just to look at verses 1 through 7, but it would seem that verses 8 through 11 are really where Paul is heading, what, what he's driving towards. Verses 1 through 7 explain what God has done for us in adopting us, but Paul has in mind to talk about adoption with the purpose of, of, of making a point. And I'll give you the outline very simply. We're going to talk, to talk about the fact that, first of all, we were slaves. We're then going to talk about the fact that now we are sons and daughters of God. And then Paul's argument in verses 8 through 11 is don't go back to being slaves. If you were slaves and now you are sons and daughters, you are children of God, then don't go back to being slaves again. That doesn't make any sense. If you think about that illustration, we talked about adoption and the process that it takes to to adopt a child. Can you imagine going through all of that and, and raising a child for some years and then having that child say, you know, I think I'd like to go back to the orphanage. I'm not very happy here in the home, and I, and I think I would I would prefer to go back to my country and, and to live in an orphanage where I do not have a family. In some ways, that's what Paul is saying is going on here. But before we get there, let's let's walk through the passage. It, Paul begins first off with with an illustration in verses one and two. He begins with an illustration. He says, "Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date." set by the Father. It's a pretty simple illustration, but it's not one that we really um, see in our day and age. I don't know about you all, but I'm not the heir to any vast kingdom. Um, my, my parents are, you know, they, they do find their middle class, but they're not handing over any grand manner to me um, when they die or at, at any point. But this is kind of what is going on here. He says, as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave although he is owner of everything, if you can imagine um, a, someone who is a, a, a landowner, a, a lord of sorts, who owns a vast, you might say kingdom, a, a small kingdom, a, maybe a, a large house and some lands, and he has a son, a child, and the child is the heir. The child will receive all that is the father's at some point. But it says in, in verse 2 that he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So this child does not own all of this yet. He is the owner, but he is not the owner, in fact, because he's under these guardian guardians and managers until a, a certain date would come. So there's people that are in charge of him. You remember uh, we talked about the, the tutor or the, the nanny or, or um, whatever you would like to call it in verse 24. This, this person that was walking with a child, uh, disciplining the child. Well, here we have these guardians and managers who are with, with an heir, and they are taking care of the estate. They are kind of in control of things um, bef- until the child reaches a certain age, until he reaches the date set by the father. This idea of becoming coming into manhood. You, you might think about a Jewish bar mitzvah 
Or um, in that day and age, with with the Greeks, there was the, a certain toga that was worn by a younger um, by younger people, and when they came to a certain age, they they put on a, a different toga that showed that they were now uh, a, a man, that they were the heir of the estate. And so that's kind of what's going on here. The the heir is a child, uh, and he's under these guardians and managers until the date comes. And until that date comes, it says he does not differ at all from a slave although he is owner of everything. So in actuality, the way that he lives isn't any different than a slave. He, he owns everything, but he does not control anything. It's not really his to do anything with, and so in fact he doesn't really have anything at that point, even though he will one day be the owner. And so Paul's saying that he's under these guardians and managers, but when that date comes, this young man, as they would have called him, they, they would probably call him the young master, he would no longer be the young master, but he would be the master. He would be the lord of the manor, and he would be in charge of everything. The heir would become a man, and he would take over his father's estate. So he talks about this illustration, and then verse 3 he says, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. The explanation that he gives of it for us is this. He says, we were under the control and judgment, and here he's talking of the law, until the time appointed by God when we became full-fledged children of God and heirs of all that God offers us. The the parallel that he's going to draw, and we'll walk through this, I just want to give it to you up front here, is that we were under the control and judgment of, of the law until the time appointed by God when we became full-fledged children of God and heirs of all that God has to offer. Let's walk through it because it, it, it's, it's somewhat hard to, to see the, the parallels, really. He says that we were slaves. So also, while, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. We were slaves to the elemental things of the world. This is probably the hardest part to understand about this passage is what are the elemental things of the world? It could refer to the law as kind of elementary school teachings, as the ABCs um, of our faith, that the law was kind of something that was the things that we learned when we were young, and then you, you graduate to greater things. And yet what Paul's been driving at with the law is not that it's, it's, that it's the gospel in, in elementary teaching, but rather that it points to the gospel, that it shows us our, our sin, that it's, it's, it's not... Uh, something that's encapsulated the gospel and then becomes full-fledged later on, but rather it shows us, it pushes us to see the need for faith. So I think if you look at verses 8 through 10, it talks about this as well. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, there it is again, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. Verse 10 then says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. Days and months and seasons and years, probably referring to, to the law, to keeping of the, the feasts and the festivals. And so there's this parallel to, to the elemental things and, and the keeping of the law. Verse 3 again, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Another place to look is Colossians 2. Let's let's just really try to figure out what this means. Colossians 2, 
Paul uses this this phrase again. Colossians 2, and we'll look at it, just two verses here. He uses it twice, as he does in, in Galatians. Colossians 2, verse 8. says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men. Tradition of men, just kind of note that, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And then if you look at further down in verse 20, of chapter 2, he says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Especially those verses there. Doesn't it look like the law? Verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Um, he talks about these things that have the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. These are rules and, and laws that we are to keep, the elemental principles of the world. If you look back at, at Galatians Four, though, in verse 8, he says, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. He seems to be talking about what the Galatians were worshipping beforehand, that they were worshipping false gods, that we might even say that they were under the control of, of some sort of demonic force, that this was deception, that this was... Uh, spiritual warfare that's going on. So the elemental things, uh, some of the commentaries already talked about how you, the world was described as, you know, earth, wind, and fire, these, these elements that made up the world, and they were kind of always warring back and forth. Uh, so there, there is this, this aspect of, of almost spiritual warfare, of, of demonic influence, of, um, of, uh, this, this deeper spiritual battle that's going on. But yet there's also that hint that, at the law, First Timothy, I, I came into my mind as I was studying because he talks and he says, um, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. I think it's a combination of these things. We're kind of talking about, you know, the elemental, the, these elementary things, these, 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 um, elementary principles that they are, they are the law. They are the rules that we think that we are supposed to do to earn favor with God. But, but what it is, is it's also this spiritual warfare where, where Satan is wise. He's he's smart. He disguises himself as an angel of light, and he takes the law and says, "Use this to to make yourself right with God. Use use the law to to make God happy with you." You know, we think of demonic forces as as cults and as false religions, but sometimes if Satan can't get us to break the law, then he will use it to to transform our minds to get us to keep it for the wrong reasons to keep it in a way that, that we think we are earning favor with God. So Paul kind of takes things a step further here. He has been talking about how keeping the law 
being circumcised, doing all of these things that we think would make God happy with us is not how we come to faith, is not how we come to God, but we come by faith. And now he's saying, and there's something deeper going on here. There's, there's, there's this doctrine of, of demons. There are these elementary principles. And, and you think in verse 8 where he talks about how you were slaves to these, these gods in the past. You were worshiping them. You were trying to, to do what pleased them. And, and you were trying to, to keep the law. Are you going to go back to being a, a slave to those things? So it's it's somewhat hard to understand, and this is my best stab at it. But again, so also while verse three, so also while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. This this idea of earning favor with God by keeping the teachings of the law, and underneath that, the the influence of demonic forces of the elemental things of the world, saying that this is what we need to do. So keeping the law, but keeping it for the wrong reasons, keeping it in a way where we think we earn favor with God. So he says we were slaves to these things. And then verse 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, and that we might receive the adoption of sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts crying Abba Father. So we were slaves, but now we are sons. Look look at what God does here. First of all, look at God's timing. Now we are sons, and look at God's timing. It says, when the fullness of the time came. When the fullness of the time came. God has perfect timing. I thought about, you you know, if you you watch a, a superhero movie, superheroes have perfect timing. You know, there's that moment where everything is just going to fall apart and, and Superman shows up right when he needs to. He's, al- he's always right there. He's, except for that one time when Lois died and he had to reverse the rotation of the earth. Do you remember? Er- I wish Eric was here because he would appreciate that. But, um, there, there, there's, there's this perfect timing. I, I remember one of my favorite lines from, um, The Lord of the Rings is where, um, Gandalf shows up and, and, um, Frodo tells him, he says, you're late. And Gandalf says, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he intends to. I think it's something like that. Um, God is, is never late. God comes in the perfect time when the fullness of time came. God came right when he needed to. What, what was it about the time of the incarnation, the time when Jesus showed up on the earth that made that the perfect time, the fullness of time? Uh, people have speculated, they talked about the peace of Rome, and, and how Rome had this, this control and that it was, it was the perfect environment for the gospel to come into. Um, about language, that there was this, this universal language and the roads. And so everything just kind of worked well for the spread of the gospel. And that's why God chose this specific time. Some of the things that I read were talking about how the, the fatigue of the law was setting in. People were trying to keep the law and it was just, it was getting to the place where it, no one knew what to do. And, and you've also, you think about, you have the Pharisees there that, I mean, what would the Gospels be like without the Pharisees in, in this full-fledged form? So it's hard to know exactly why we could factor in all these things, but we know that it was when the fullness of the time came. It was, it was the perfect time. 
he knew exactly what he was doing. God knew that this was the time. I, I love the way that, that scripture talks about that. If you've been reading through um, John with us in the readings as we're leading up to Easter, you start noticing that phrase where Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Have you noticed this? If you're reading through John, take note of it. He keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And about verse or about chapter 12, we're going to hear him say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But in many ways, they couldn't touch him until the hour came, until he said, now is the time. He was in complete control and he knew when the right hour was. I think about Romans 5, 6, where Paul writes, when we were without strength at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God is always on time. He knows right what he needs to do. He is in control. And, and when the fullness of time came, God shows up. So I just think it's amazing to think about God's timing. Think next about God's initiative. God's initiative. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. God sent forth his son. Salvation always finds its origin in God. God is the one that set this process in order. And it's going to lead, we'll see later on, to our adoption. And even as we think about just adoption for for human beings, as we would adopt, it's always set in motion by a parent seeking out a child. They set this process in motion. And God, when the fullness of time came, he takes the initiative and he sends forth his son. God is the author of salvation from beginning to end. And God is the one who chooses to send his son to redeem his people. Salvation always finds its origin in God. So we think about God's timing and, and God's initiative. Again, just that, that phrase, God sent forth his son. I, I read one thing that said that is, that is the gospel encapsulated right there. God sent forth his son. That's, that's what he has done to redeem us, to save us. So God's timing, God's initiative. Think about this next, God's wisdom. God's wisdom. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. What do those two phrases mean? What they show us is, is that God knows what he's doing when it comes to salvation. He, he says that Jesus was, was born of a woman. He was born like everyone else is, is that emphasis. He was born just like you and I were. He was Born of a woman, just as everyone in this room was born of a woman. He became a man. Well, why? I think I was going to try to explain it, but I think Hebrews 2 explains it so well that there's no reason for me to try to explain it. It says in Hebrews 2, it says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, in other words, therefore, since we have flesh and blood, since we have bodies, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, partook of flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You see that parallel there with the, the slavery? Um, but it says that, that Jesus partook of flesh and blood because we have flesh and blood. And he did it so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. He came to deliver us from the elemental things of the world. And he does it 
by dying. He came and he had to come born of woman so that he could die. He had to share in our flesh and blood so that he could die in our place. So he was born of a woman, but he was also born under the law. Jesus was born as a Jewish boy. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He followed the law as he was supposed to. He was subjected to keeping the law. And the amazing thing is that he did it perfectly. As we saw last week, the law exposes our sin, but in Jesus it exposes his righteousness. What for us is a sentence of death is it shows how Jesus keeps the law. He fulfills the law. He does what we never could do. He was born under the law, and he kept the law in a way that we never could. So we see God's wisdom in that that Jesus had to be born of a woman. He had to be born in flesh and blood so that he could die and pay the penalty for sin. But he had to be born under the law as well so that he could keep the law that we could not keep. This is the gospel. The gospel is that, that Jesus has come as a man so that he can die in our place and pay the price for the sins that we have committed. And he has come under the law so that he can fulfill the law in a way that we could not. So when we come to Jesus, we confess that that he was born of a woman, that he was born under the law, that he died for our sins, and that he fulfilled the law that we could not. And in that, we receive forgiveness of our sins because Jesus has paid the penalty, and in that, we receive the righteousness of Christ because he was born under the law and fulfilled the law. So look at the wisdom of salvation there. It's, it's And just in those two phrases, he was born of a woman, he was born under the law, And then look at God's purpose. Again, verse 4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. I don't know that those are that that one is flowing from the other there. That's the same word that that you you may have so that or that so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Is it redemption that then leads to adoption, or are these just two things that come from the fact that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law? I think it's probably two different but but conjoined things. Um, so that, first of all, he might redeem those who were under the law. If you turn back, just to, we, we looked, we saw this in um, chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This redemption of, uh, this this idea of buying back, again, from the slave market, that we were slaves and Christ comes and he redeems us. He pays the price and he buys us out of the slave market. He redeems us and makes us his own. He redeems us from the curse of the law. He redeems us from the elemental things of the world. And, and the reality is that he could have stopped there. He could have just redeemed us from those things. But then the beautiful thing is that next it says that we might receive the adoption as sons. So he, his purpose is not only to redeem us, but also to adopt us. We saw God's initiative again. This, we talked about that idea of desire, that God desired to adopt us as children. Now here's where I struggled in some ways, because I think the illustration breaks down. Remember he's saying that we are like that heir. Remember the, the heir that owned this manor, and when the date came, then he became the ruler of all. Uh, the son 
of of the of the Lord of the manor, if you want to call it that. Uh, when the date came, then he was to take over. But we are not born as children of God. There, there is no one except for Jesus that is a true son of God. There is no one that that is a, a child of God in that same way. And so the the heir, it's inherent because of his because of his lineage, because he was born of this father, that therefore he receives it. But all of God's children are adopted. Every single one of us, if we are in God's family, it's because we have been adopted. Now you think about, remember what's going on. The Judaizers are coming and they're saying, well, you, need to be, um, you, you need to be circumcised, you need to keep the law in order to be truly saved, in order to be a true Christian. And, and what Paul, I think, is, is subtly getting at here is that no one is an heir because of how they are born. We are all adopted. We all come into the family as outsiders. We all come in because God has chosen to adopt us, because God has sent forth his son. I, I want to read, um, this This book is it's called Adopted for Life by Russ Moore, who's over at uh, the seminary. And, and it's it's about adoption, but in uh, you know, the children that they have adopted, but also about um, our adoption as children of God. And this illustration it was so helpful to me as I thought through this. So, this is the beginning of a chapter called Are They Brothers? Uh, I want to read a little bit of it. I hope it's engaging. Uh, but it, it helps describe, I think, what Paul is trying to do here. Um, he says, quote, So are they brothers, the woman asked. My wife, Maria, and I, jet-lagged from just returning from Russia, looked at each other wearily. This was the twelfth time since we returned that we'd been asked this question. When I looked back at the woman's face, she had her eyebrows raised. Are they, she repeated, are they brothers? This lady was looking at some pictures printed off a computer of two one-year-old boys in a Russian orphanage. Boys who had only days earlier been pronounced by a Russian court to be our children, after the legally mandated waiting period had elapsed for the paperwork to go through. Maria and I had returned to Kentucky to wait for the call to return to pick up our children and had only these pictures of young Maxim and Sergei, our equivalent of a parental sonogram, to show to our friends and relatives back home. But people kept asking, are they brothers? They are now, I replied. Yes, the woman said, I know, but are they really brothers? Clenching my jaw and repeating beatitudes to myself silently in my mind, I coolly responded, yes, now they are both our children, so they are now really brothers. The woman sighed, rolled her eyes, and said, well, you know what I mean. Of course, we did know what she meant. What she wondered was whether these two boys, born three weeks apart, share a common biological ancestry, a common bloodline, some common DNA. It struck me that this question betrayed what most of us tend to view as really important when it comes to sonship, traceable genetic material. This is the reason people would also ask us, now do you have any children of your own? Now do you have any children of your own? And it is the reason newspaper obituaries will often refer to the deceased's adopted child, as though this were the equivalent of a stepchild or a protege rather than real offspring. During the weeks that Maria and I waited anxiously for the call to return to Russia to receive our children, I pondered this series of questions as I read through the books of Ephesians and Galatians and Romans. It occurred to me that this is precisely the question that was faced by the Apostle Paul 
and the first century Christian churches. And this is where he draws the brings it to, to where we're at. A pig flesh eating Gentile as as pig flesh eating Gentile believers, formerly goddess worshippers and Caesar magnifiers and all the rest, began confessing Jesus as the Messiah, some Jewish Christians demanded to know are they circumcised? This meant, of course, are they really part of us? Are they our brothers? The Gentile believers would respond, yes, with the circumcision made without hands, the circumcision of Christ. From the heated letters of the New Testament, it's evident that the response to that was along the lines of, yes, but are you really circumcised? And you know what I mean. This was no peripheral issue. For the Apostle Paul, the unity of the church as a household has everything to do with the gospel itself. And where the tribal fracturing of the church is most threatening, Paul lays out a key insight into the church's union with Christ, the spirit of adoption. For Paul, adoption isn't simply one more literary image to convey Jesus in my heart. It has everything to do with our identity and our inheritance in Christ, with who we are and where we're headed. I know that was long. I hope it was helpful. But just to think about what what Paul is saying here is that, that we are all brothers. We are all sisters because we are all adopted. And no one can actually say, well... I wasn't adopted. I am a true heir of God. Even even the Jewish believers could not say that. There's language in the Old Testament of of God adopting Israel out of these foreign lands, away from the gods that they had been worshiping. All God's children are adopted, and we are all in the same boat in that way. And so there is unity in that. We can think back to what we read in verse 28 of chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And another source of our unity is that we are all one because we have all been adopted. And that's what makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. No one can claim that they are more adopted than another person, that they are more of a son or more of a daughter of God. But rather, we are all adopted as sons. We receive this adoption. I think about the prodigal son you remember part of what Jesus was driving home with the three stories that he told, the, the story of, of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, the story of the lost son, was that the Pharisees were not rejoicing at the people that were coming into the kingdom. And he tells this story of the prodigal son. And you remember at the end, it's it's really the story about the older brother. And, and the older brother is, is upset because this son has come back. And you remember what he calls him? He doesn't even call him his brother. He says to his father, that son of yours has come back. And it was the attitude of the Pharisees that, that people, other people were coming in, but they, were, they weren't real, true sons of God. And I think that's what's going on here, that, that people are looking at these Gentile believers and other people that are coming into the kingdom, and they're saying, well, they're, they're second class. They're, they're adopted sons. They're not real sons. If we're adopted, we are real sons. And everyone that comes into the family of God comes by adoption. And so there's no reason for us to look at someone and consider them a second-class son, a second-class daughter of God. But we are all adopted by God, by his initiative, in the perfect time, according to his wisdom, for the purpose of redeeming us and making us his children. So we've looked at, at, at God's timing, God's initiative, God's wisdom, God's purpose, and then I want to look at God's spirit. It says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son 
into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What an amazing thing happens here. The, the Trinity is involved in our adoption process. When the fullness of time came, God sends forth Jesus. Jesus is the one that, that in a sense, he, he comes and he fills out the paperwork. God has sent Jesus, and he is the one that, that takes care of what needs to be done for the adoption to happen. And then the spirit of his son, it says, which is a unique phrase there, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Up to this point, verses 4 and 5, he's telling us how it was done. You know, we think about the wisdom that, that Jesus was born of a woman, that he was born under the law. These are all the things that had to happen for us to be adopted and then God sends his spirit and he says, the spirit's going to come into your heart and say, yes, you are adopted. It's going to cry out in you and you're going to, to have this sense that God is now your father. That you can use a word like Abba and refer to him in this familial sense. There is, there is um, a logical, rational way to understand justification. That it has happened because God has sent Jesus, that it has happened because Jesus was born of a woman, that it was, has happened because he was born under the law and fulfilled the law and that he has bought us back with the price of his blood. And we, we believe and trust all those things. And yet sometimes it can become sort of cerebral. It's just in our head. And so God sends the spirit and the spirit says, yes, I truly am adopted. I am, I am a son. I am, I am a daughter of God. The spirit of God cries out within us in this, this loving sense that says, Abba, Father, do you know that sense of calling God your Father in that way? One of the purposes of the Spirit coming is to help us to know, and I would even go as far as to say to feel that we are children of God. To have that, that love for the Father that responds, Abba, that, that loves Him as, as a Father. The Spirit, God has sent forth the Spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I, I would encourage you to, to think on these things and, and to, to, to ask God to help you to, to understand and to know and even to, to feel and to, that, that he is your father, that he, that he cares for you, that he loves you like a father. Verse 7 then is a summary, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir. Through God. The application that he gives, and we're going to touch on this now, and we're going to touch on it again next week, but the application is, if all this is true, if, if you were a slave to elementary principles, if you were a slave to things that could never save you, and now God has gone to the initiative at the perfect time, in his perfect wisdom, to send Jesus of his own initiative to redeem us, to buy us back, and to adopt us and make us children and heirs of God, if that is true, then why in the world would you ever go back to serve those things? Why would we ever go back to, to thinking that we need to keep the law? Why would we ever go back to, he says in verse 8, however at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear that perhaps I have labored in vain. He exalts in what God has done in adoption. And then he says, and, 
and, and you guys are forsaking it. You're just you're going right back to where you were. You're you're going back to the orphanage. You're going back to the squall. You are in re-enslaving yourselves to things that are not gods, but that you are worshiping. To to the sins that you were in before. To the way of thinking that you were in before where you were enslaved to the law, thinking that you had to do these things for God to be happy with you. You are re-enslaving yourselves. Why? Why are you doing that? I think we all fall into that trap. And so much of it is rooted in that we don't understand who we are as children of God. Do you believe that you are a son of God? I know I read a long quote, but I have to read another one because it's my favorite one on adoption. And it's it's from Knowing God by, by J.I. Packer. And he he says this. He says, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Father. If you want to judge, listen to this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. He says, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Do you know that God is your Father? Do you feel the Spirit crying out within you, Abba, Father? If we know that, then we will never go back to re-enslave ourselves. That's why the idea is so absurd. The idea of someone who has been taken from an orphanage, from a place where they had no care, where no one loved them in some circumstances, why would anyone ever go back to that if they've been brought into a family that loves them, that cares for them? It is, it's crazy. And that's so much what Paul is saying. He is saying, if you know that God is your father, if you know that God loves you, then you won't go back into these sins that you were enslaved to before. You won't go back to this way of living that says, I must do these things for God to be happy with me. I don't have to do that because I know God loves me. And why do I know that he loves me? Because he's my father. He's my dad. I went to see my dad this weekend. It was his 60th birthday. And so we went up and surprised him. And I don't have to do anything to earn favor with my dad. I didn't go up there to, to, um, so that he would love me more. You know, I show up and so now my, my dad loves me more. Now I'm, I'm more of a son. I went because I love him and because he's my dad and I know that he appreciates it. There, there is that, that understanding because he is my father and there, that, that I, I love him and there is this, this love that he has towards me. And so, it makes sense to drive six hours to go see him on his birthday because he is my father. Now, all our relationships with our fathers aren't the same, but we know about God because he has shown us this. He has shown us in what he has done with his perfect timing in sending his very own son in the wisdom of salvation to redeem us 
to adopt us. And then he sends his spirit that cries out and says, yes, I am your father. If we know that, then we won't go back into the elemental things. So much of who we are is, is rooted in our, in our minds and, and who we believe that we are. I, I think our world today is really trying to, to say this, this is who I am. This is at the core who I am. We have all these different social medias, Twitter and, and, and Facebook and, you have to define who you are. Here's 140 characters to describe your biography. This is who I am. Or we, we project things on Facebook. I'm going to put this picture up because this makes me look good. I'm going to put this status up because everyone will think I'm cool because I did this. And so we're always projecting who we are and trying to say, this is who I am. This is who I am. And as a Christian this morning, all I want to say to you is this. You are a child of God. And nothing else matters if that is true. And if that is true, it will motivate us to love him, to serve him. And we won't go back enslaving ourselves to the silly, stupid things that we did beforehand because we know our Father loves us and, and we trust his heart and the Spirit cries out and leads us to do what he's called us to do. So whoever you think you are, whatever you have defined yourself as, whatever your Facebook status says today, whatever your biography on some website says, whatever some company thinks that you are, here's who you are. You are a child of God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray even now that the, the truth of these verses would sink down and that verse 6 would just become true, even now in our hearts, Lord, that your spirit would come in and cry out, Abba, Father, that we would know deep down Lord, that you are our Father. I pray for those that are here today that that are believers, that that would be true, that it would sink down deep into our hearts, that we would know our identity as your children, and that we would live out of that truth. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who, who does not know that, Lord, who you are not their Father, that your Spirit would cry out in a different way, Lord, push them to see the beauty of salvation, to push them to see all that you have done, Lord, that you have sent your Son at the perfect time to redeem us, to save us from our sins and to give us the righteousness of Christ, to redeem us from being slaves, and to take us from slavery to sonship, to be your children. But the, these truths are, are easy to, to say in some ways. They, they roll off the tongue simply. And yet for us to know them deeply, it takes your spirit. And so we ask, Lord, speak to our hearts. Let these things sink down deep. Pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen.